Hi, I'm Mark Roderman. Coming up on Front Row, we'll talk about President Biden's first year on the job. There's a brand new statewide poll in the Republican primary for U.S. Senate. And Governor Cooper expands his clean energy plan. Next. Major funding for Front Row was provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Yuen through the Yuen Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities. And by. Funding for the Lightning Round provided by Body Knoll Foundation, NC Realtors, Mary Louise and John Burris, Reifenberg Construction, and Helen Lockery. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row. Welcome back. Joining the conversation, Mitch Kokai with the John Locke Foundation, Democratic State Senator Jay Tarari, political analyst Joe Stewart, and Nelson Dollar, Senior Advisor to North Carolina Speaker of the House. Let's start with President Biden's first year on the job. Mitch, why don't you kick us off? January 20th, which is this coming Thursday, officially marks one year in office for President Biden, and his supporters are pointing to a list of accomplishments, 490 million COVID jabs in arms, more jobs and less unemployment than when he took office, uh, trillions in new government spending, uh, and then critics respond with an even longer list saying he completely failed on this issue of shutting down COVID-19, and there are now more overall deaths under President Biden than there were under Donald Trump. Also, uh, there has been a, a problem in terms of the inflation level being higher than we've seen in decades. All of this uh, spending is having an impact on the economy, and that's not a good one. We've also seen him have some problems, President Biden, that is, getting some bipartisan agreement on things like that Build Back Better plan. Then the latest that's dead, right? It, it seems to be seems to be dead in the water. And the latest controversy and critique he had was over this very uh, strident, divisive speech about ending the filibuster so you could get the Democrats' wish list on nationalizing election rules. Uh, as all of this is taking place, voters don't seem to be all that thrilled about what's happening. If you look at the real clear politics average, he's at about 42 percent job approval, 12 points underwater, and there was even a poll this week from Quinnipiac that put him at 33 percent, just one third support within the nation. That's as low as the lowest point under Donald Trump at his worst. Jay, you have the floor, my friend. Well, I'll tell you one thing. The Quinnipiac poll has been put, they've been pushed back in the Biden administration against that. They think it's an outlier. But I'd say a couple of things. I think one is uh, Biden and Democrats are not doing enough to take credit for um, a strong two-year performance. We, we've got a stock market that's at record highs, a GDP growth that's projected to be at five point. Uh, 5%, and I think Democrats need to stop being humble and tar start taking credit. I mean, the fact of the matter is uh, Biden has, uh, you know, has saved the economy, has uh, tackled the, the virus. I think that we're going to see a better... Is it a messaging problem? I think it is. I think it is a messaging problem, and I think part of the reason we have a messaging problem is that the American perception tends to lag the economic conditions. So once we see the economic conditions, Biden and Democrats could actually be better positioned going into the midterm because that lag and the boom may happen towards the second half of the Nelson, year. Nelson, you agree with Jay, don't you? I think uh, where you have to, what you have to do is you have to go back to July. So on July 4th, Biden declared America's coming back together. 
COVID virus no longer controls our lives, no longer paralyzes the nation. On July the 8th, he said that military forces in Afghanistan were on track for a smooth exit with no loss of U.S. lives. Afghan allies would leave safely. We'd have a peace process. On July 19th, Biden said nobody's suggesting there's unchecked uh, inflation on the way, no serious economist. So that's 0 for 4 right there. And those are the reasons why uh, he is polling at uh, his lowest numbers uh, uh, since his presidency. He started. hasn't had a good couple of weeks, has he? No, it's been it's been really tough. And I'd say there are really only two things that the American people hold the president accountable for, things that are legitimately the president's fault and everything else. And so, <laughs> to some extent, Biden is not the beneficiary of incredibly positive economic news. The S&P 500 finished the year up 30 percent. All 11 sectors in the composite have done well. But somehow the messaging out of the White House is not giving Biden the benefit of good news that Americans should feel proud about. Yeah, but the economy is not good for the blue collar right now. The prices are up all, almost across the board, aren't they? With such uh, an inflation issue that we haven't seen for decades, that can't be a good sign for anyone who's in office. I think one of the biggest problems for President Biden right now is that when he came to office, a lot of people supported him because he wasn't Donald Trump. He wasn't going to be this. And he said he was going to be a moderate. Right. He wasn't going to be pugnacious and fighting. And this speech that he gave about uh, trying to end the filibuster so you could get the Democrats' election reform bill uh, basically showed a guy who was just as much of a political infighter as anyone else really turned people off. Okay, I want to change gears, talk about a new statewide poll in the Republican primary for Senate. Yeah, but Civitas, John Locke Foundation, had put out a poll that showed the head-to-head -head comparison between Pat McCrory, former governor running for the seat being vacated by Richard Burr with his retirement, Ted Budd, a congressman also running for that seat. It showed uh, McCrory up by about five percentage points among the rest of the field, which also includes Mark Walker, former congressman, although some question as to whether Mark uh, Walker will drop out of the Senate race and get into a congressional race. I think waiting to see what settles out in terms of the redistricting lawsuits. Interestingly enough, Mark, the thing in this poll that I thought was interesting, if you take all of the other candidates out and it's just a head-to-head -head between McCrory and Bud, which in all likelihood it's going to be, although there'll be other candidates that are filed, Clearly, Walker's departure from the race would benefit Bud more than it does McCrory, but it still leaves almost a full third of likely Republican primary voters uncertain or unclear who they're going to support. This seems to uh, conclude, my conclusion would be, this is still a wide open race, and it's probably going to come down to the final few weeks. The fact the primary has been extended to May uh, will make it a harder race. In some ways, he'll have to have more money to continue to campaign aggressively. But I think it does advantage Bud somewhat to have a little bit more time to remind voters he's been supported by Donald Trump, which this poll shows matters a lot to these voters. That's a good point. Is, is, uh, Nelson, is Trump the kingmaker in this race? Well, he's trying to be. He's trying to be that nationally. And so he's got his battle going on right now with uh, Mitch McConnell for, for who's going to control the Senate. Uh, you see, Lindsey Graham said he would not support uh, McConnell if he didn't support Trump. Well, he did. But for on, what's going good for McConnell is the overall recruitment. So Senators Ron Johnson, uh, Charles Grassley, John Thune, have all announced that they are loyalist uh, to McConnell. They've all announced they're going to run for re-election. And in those key 
uh, pickup states, you've got Herschel Walker, who's going to be running in Georgia, Adam Laxall in Nevada, right. and now Doug Ducey, who is not a friend of Trump, is rethinking the possibility of running in Arizona. Jay, what struck you about this poll? Is, is McCrory essentially the incumbent in this race? I think he is the incumbent, but I think being incumbent in a midterm change election is not a good thing. I mean, I, so the, the two things I found fascinating about the poll, one is uh, it said that traditional GOP and college-educated voters thought the GOP was too right, and it said that the Trump GOP supporters thought that the GOP was too left, and I think you're seeing that battle take place between McCrory and Bud. Essentially, look, I think from a Democrats Democrats perspective, um, I'm all about having both of them drive their negatives up as much as possible. Uh, Jeff Jackson got out of the race last last month and uh, Governor Cooper just endorsed Sherry Beasley. I mean, we are united and going to march forward to November. Put this in context, please, Mitch. The most interesting thing about this for me, and remember, I work for the John Locke Foundation, so take this with a grain of salt, but there was a, a finding that about 50% of these likely GOP primary voters said they would support the Trump-endorsed candidate. Yet, even when it came down to just a head-to-head -head between Ted Budd and Pat McCrory, it was about 34%, 33%. So Budd has not yet translated people's interest in going along with the Trump-supported and endorsed candidate into well, yeah, having a vote for him. One of the for that, I think, is he's not on broadcast TV. It's, they're just speaking to the, uh, to the base, but there's a lot of Republicans who don't watch Fox. There, that's right. And also, much of what you've seen that's been in favor of Ted Budd at this point has basically been attack ads ads on McCrory, not ads saying, hey, right, done I'm... by the Club for Growth. Right, by the Club for Growth. You haven't seen a lot of advertising saying, Ted Budd, Donald Trump, they're too connected. Vote for, vote for Bud. Okay, I want to move on. Jay, the governor's uh, up in his game on clean energy. Uh, he is. Last Friday, uh, Governor Cooper signed an executive order at North Carolina A&T in Greensboro that directed the Department of Transportation to create what's called a clean transportation plan uh, that will guide the state's transition to electric vehicles. The order also directs the all state agencies to, to consider equity in their spending and also uh, identify an environmental justice person. Uh, by the end, uh, these agencies should also create a public participation f uh, plan. And finally, the order sets uh, statewide greenhouse glass gas reductions by 50 percent um, by 2030 and then net zero by 2050. Uh, predictively, the executive order has been um, championed by the environmental community, but conservatives like our friends in the John Lott Foundation have argued that such an order would increase costs on electricity for consumers, particularly poor families. Is it practical, <clears throat> Nelson? Well, just one thing, the General Assembly is the one who set those standards in, in legislation and, and negotiated that, uh, those net neutral uh, issues. And not, not really. I mean, when you look at this, these executive orders were more about framing issues than moving the needle on climate change. Where we're missing the boat is 90 percent of the globe, global population uh, doesn't even live within a thousand miles of areas that actually have reasonably good solar and wind potential. And there's also a fundamental issue that has to be solved in uh, electricity storage. Lithium is okay for car batteries, but it doesn't have the energy density for base power storage. And there's also associated environmental concerns. America would be far better served if we were actually spending our focus and our money on basic material science research. We haven't done that. 
Joe, is the governor speaking outside of North Carolina? Is he trying to speak to a national audience? Well, I think this is certainly an issue that has national prominence. A lot of governors around the country and the president of the United States talk about these incentives that we're trying to create for the development and implementation of different sources of energy. You know, the reason I mention this is because he is now the head of the Democratic Governors Association, so he's got a much larger platform, correct? Well, I, I don't think it should be lost on anyone. First of all, it's probably not a bad idea to try to figure out what might stimulate some new technology that would be better, more efficient. I'm not advocating for or against what the governor's proposing, but there are some innovations that probably would make sense in terms of a better, more efficient delivery of energy. But it should not also be lost on anyone that this is a national issue. Governor Cooper, whose name's being dropped as a possible Ooh, presidential the candidate. The Democratic base loves and, and this issue. So it, it probably doesn't hurt in terms of stimulating that continued sense of Governor Cooper as even still a rising star of the National Democratic Party. Mitch? A lot of this is window dressing, but uh, one thing that we always need to keep in mind is anytime the government puts its thumb on the energy sector and makes some sort of decision that's regardless of the least cost, re most reliable energy source, it's always going to mean higher costs. And the people who pay, as was alluded to just a few moments ago, are the folks at the lowest end of the income scale because energy is a larger portion of their overall bill. It's also going to have an impact on businesses at a time when they're dealing with inflation on the inputs for their other goods and services. But there is a national move to, to, to try to change people's habits, right, Jay? No, uh, look, I, I would say two things. You're, you're exactly right. One is um, I think the private sector recognizes that there's a movement to change habits. I mean, if you look at how aggressively Ford and GM are moving to uh, create electric vehicles, Governor Cooper had an announcement of Toyota uh, establishing a battery plant to look at to support electric vehicles. Uh, this executive order makes sense, but I think from a, a climate perspective, it also makes sense because we know that transportation is the second highest cause of uh, greenhouse emissions. Nelson, wrap this up in about 40 seconds. <clears throat> well, I, I think that we are talking about a lot of things uh, to move the needle on climate change, but we really haven't done, as I said before, a lot of the basic research. We, when you analyze where the population centers are in the world, uh, a lot of these solutions are not going to be able to be online before they want to get rid of uh, fossil fuels like um, uh, natural gas and also fuels like nuclear energy, those are going to have to be in transition to these cleaner fuels for much longer than people think. Okay, I'm coming right back to you. Split decision in the Supreme Court on vaccine mandates. Big win for businesses, correct? Uh, yes. So on Thursday, the Supreme Court issued two orders. The first was granting a stay in the enforcement of OSHA's rule mandating of, uh, employee vaccinations for all companies with 100 or more workers. That's roughly 84 million Americans. Uh, the court ruled that it was an unprecedented mandate by OSHA who lacked the statutory authority from Congress to issue that rule. In other words, it wasn't a specific <clears throat> workplace uh, hazard. This was a, a broader societal hazard, which they don't have the authority for. It's a setback for the executive branch, correct? Oh, I think it's a big setback. And it's also important, it's important to note that the court has upheld the right of companies, institutions, states, uh, and even Congress, if it wants to, to pass a law to have vaccine mandates. You have to do these things the appropriate way. Uh, the second case uh, uh, order that was issued by the Supreme Court does allow the Secretary of Health and Human Services to require vaccination of workers uh, in facilities with Medicare and Medicaid patients. Here, the court did find the specific congressional um, authority 
uh, for the rule to support that rule. So it was a split decision, and it, it, it came down kind of where a lot of people thought that it would. There is precedent, though, right, Jay? We have had a vaccine, vaccine mandates before, correct? We have, and you know, we have vaccine mandates for kids that go to, to go to school. I mean, what what I would say um, about the decision is that I think number one, it's not surprising because I think given what we heard with the oral arguments, the conservative justices expressed a lot of doubt. But those, um, those mandates are <laughs> state mandates. They were they were state mandates back during smallpox. Uh, it's well, never been a it's never been a congressional mandate. It, well, but but we've had a we've had a mandate that's been upheld by the state supreme court, and I and I would say secondly, um, if you look at the OSHA emergency rules, what it does say is that if a worker's in grave danger, they're allowed to provide the mandate. And I think if you listen to the debate, Justice Kagan asked, I mean, it asked if the if the workplace hasn't been transformed over the last two years, what better example do we need of, of the fact that workers are in grave danger? Mitch Biden did say himself early on. On, though, that he didn't have the authority to do this, correct? Yeah, and he basically reversed himself by going forward with the mandate. I think one of the things that is interesting out of the Supreme Court, and not surprising, is that it basically looked at what is the proper role of various branches of government and said that the executive branch, and especially Occupational Safety and Health Administration, didn't have the power to do what Biden wanted it to do. If the national government is going to take action on this, it's something for Congress to do. And in fact, they said if Congress wants to do it, they can. This is this is an issue of separation of powers and what level of government has the power to do something. How does this ruling uh, affect productivity, my friend? Well, I think in, in many ways, a Supreme Court decision is really interpretation of law and how the Constitution may be applying. But I think public opinion at this point certainly is clouded a little bit by what they're calling COVID fatigue. I mean, people are just exhausted from all of this discussion. Yeah, but, but what I'm trying to get to, there's 100 million employees that were going to be uh, impacted by this, correct? Yeah, no, th and that's my point. I mean, when you look at issues like, are you in grave danger? But it's still, it's on the woodpile of people continuing to express frustration about having to deal with all of these different things, it's absolutely going to have an effect on people's productivity and their sense of the workplace as we try to navigate. What does it mean in a COVID world where we're trying to make sure people have opportunities for gainful employment, but you're having to do either work from home or hybrid or even service sector jobs where you're not sure your own safety? It's just another element of what's causing great consternation in this country, and people just want it to be over. Mark, now, so wrap this up. Go ahead. Mark, I, I was going to say that you know, we talked about Biden's approval ratings. I mean, if we don't get COVID under control, which the mandate is one avenue to do so, we can't reboot the economy. How's he handled, can't, that? So how's he's handled that so far, you well, think? Well, I think, I, think that the, I think the administration has advocated for a mandate because I think the mandate is the quickest way to get folks vaccinated and restart the economy and move away from the COVID fatigue that Joe was talking about. Okay, I want to go to the most underreported story of the week, Mitch. Six months after it unexpectedly disappeared from the state Supreme Court's calendar, a case called North Carolina NAACP v. Moore will finally be up for oral arguments on February 14th, Valentine's Day. The reason that it disappeared was that there was a controversy over a while uh, uh, whether two Republican justices on the court were going to be able to hear the case or whether their colleagues were going to boot them in an unprecedented move. The case is important because it deals with the fate of two constitutional amendments that North Carolina voters approved in 2018 by substantial margins, one to guarantee voter ID for future elections, the other to lower the cap on the state's income tax rate. Uh, now that the issue has been settled, that the justices will retain the right to decide for themselves whether they're going to hear a case, now the case will come back for an argument on its merits in February, sometime afterward, then the Supreme Court will decide 
probably with all seven justices deciding it, whether those two amendments could stand. It's great to be a uh, lawyer in North Carolina. Yes. Isn't it, <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, uh, keeps you busy. Full Employment Act. It's, uh, not, it's not great every day, <laughs> but it's good a lot of days. Um, <laughs> so, uh, underreported story of the week. Uh, this past Tuesday, Assistant Attorney General Matthew Olson testified in front of Congress that the U.S. Department of Justice is establishing a unit focused on domestic terrorism, and that's due to the elevated threat from violent extremists here in the United States and Olson's they, testimony. They identified as extremists? Uh, who? who the, the, the Justice Department. They did. The elevated threat. Well, I, so I think that's going to be the debate, right? How do you define right. extremists? But we also know from Olson's testimony that this tracks the FBI director's warning that we're seeing a growth in domestic terror threats that are metastasizing. Underreported, my friend. Boy, with all this bad news, I have a, a little bit of good news. The Girl Scouts announced this week that they're entering into a cooperative agreement with DoorDash, the delivery <laughs> service. So in the pandemic world, even if you need your Thin Mints and we're apprehensive about actual interaction with an actual Girl Scout, you can now go online and order your Thin Mints to be delivered to your home via DoorDash. There's a supply chain issue. <laughs> <laughs> Did they deliver your tie as well? Well, one of the most underreported stories is why Russia is actually threatening to invade Ukraine now. We talk about the issue, but the people don't talk about why. And first off is Russia cannot defend their borders in the West. They don't have the military might that they had when they were under, when they were part of the Soviet Union. Uh, second, they have a terminal uh, demographic uh, in Russia, and that means they don't have they're not going to be able to secure their vast borders. Um, if they don't do it this decade, they won't be able to do it in the 2030s. So it's an existential issue for the Russians. There's no easy path for them forward, whether they invade How or not. How are they invade. doing in the talks the Biden administration with the Russians? I think they're at a loggerheads. And I think what the U.S. needs to do is neither U.S. or NATO is willing to fight. So the solution would be to rescind any future NATO expansion into Ukraine, grant control of the Azov Sea to Russia, permanently open the North Crimean uh, Canal, and keep offensive NATO missiles out of, out of Ukraine and in return tell the Russians that they're going to fully respect Ukraine's boundaries, their sovereignty and independence. There's a deal that could be made there. Okay, let's go to the lightning round. Who's up and who's down this week, Mitch? What's up is the celebrity factor in North Carolina elections. It's not often that you hear about a North Carolina congressional race on The View, but that's what happens when former American <laughs> Idol and yeah, with a former American <laughs> Idol and celebrity apprentice runner-up Clay Aiken decides to run for office again. He wants to run for what is now going to be the 6th District, David Price's How do you do old that race? Quickly. I, I think I think it's a I think Aiken brings a lot of name ID to the Gary race. Pierce I think is it's high a, on him. Hunt's an old well, consultant. I think I think Pierce has served as a consultant for him before. <laughs> okay, as, as well, well. <laughs> so who's the down? celebrity factors up? <laughs> who's down? The plaintiffs and the legions of lawyers representing them in court in the redistricting case. A three-judge panel and a 260-page ruling basically said yes, these maps were drawn with partisan intent, but nothing in our state's history or the state constitution makes that unconstitutional. Okay. Jay, who's up? Who's down this week? Um, East 
exports are up. Uh, their their uh, state budget includes uh, $28 million to uh, bring eSport events to North Carolina. The Triangle is home to a lot of eSport companies, including Epic. Jason Sane, Republican in the House, gets credit. Says he plays a lot of Call of Duty. We don't know how many hours he's devoted <laughs> oh, to Call he of Duty. Okay. Yeah. And then who's down is, uh, is Madison Cawthorn. Uh, this week, a group of voters filed a, a candidacy challenge against him, citing that he was part of the January 6th insurrection. That's a 1868 amendment to the U.S. Constitution that says no one can serve if they've been engaged in an insurrection. Was that dog hunt? Uh, it'll be it'll be interesting. Just as Bob Orr uh, is is helped litigating that case, and he's a great state constitutional sure. scholar. Well, maybe I should chain my up to the possibility that Front Row becomes a video game now. <laughs> <laughs> up the U.S. Chamber announced they want to see a doubling in the number of lawful immigrations into the United States. They say we need the workers, and so the Biden administration should be and would be well served by allowing more people to come to the United States lawfully. Down the impact on women uh, in the workplace from COVID. We now see the participation rate among women, 57.8%. Women who are eligible to work age-wise and, and such, it's the lowest rate it's been since 1991. So coming out of COVID, women who have disproportionately been impacted by COVID, primary caregivers at home and having to leave the workplace to take care of, of uh, folks as a result of COVID, we're going to have to do more to get women back into the workforce. Nelson, who's up and who's down this week? Uh, inflation and the potential for stagflation. So in December, inflation increased by 7%. That is a 40-year high. Core inflation was up 5.5%. That was a 30-year high. The prospects for stagflation are up because the U.S. economy is in a cyclical downturn already. Productivity is down, and the Fed is looking to raise interest rates probably at the precisely wrong moment. Uh, who is down is President Biden. Been picking on him this week. The Washington Post gave him four Pinocchios for telling a group of students at Morehouse College in Atlanta that he was actually arrested during the civil rights movement. Uh, it has been proven on countless occasions that President Biden has never been arrested in the civil rights movement. We okay, don't have enough next week. for Donald Trump. <laughs> My headline, uh, with primary just four months away, state Supreme Court works quickly on election maps. Jay, headline next week? Um, same, same for me. Uh, North Carolina Supreme Court sets aggressive briefing schedule for both parties. Oral arguments to be heard with the decision coming out shortly thereafter. What's going to be the result, you think? I think it's hard to predict, but I but there's certainly there's certainly case law, and the United States Supreme Court has said that state Supreme Courts can rule on partisan gerrymandering. Okay. I think there's an avenue to do so. Quickly, headline next week: a surprise announcement out of the Biden administration. Nelson Dollar, U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, based on his comments here on Front Row. <laughs> headline next week: I'll take we'll take the job. <laughs> Kiev is a wonderful place. Uh, Democrats fail to break the filibuster. Okay, that's it for us. Great job, gents. Thanks for watching. Hope to see you next week on Front Row. Have a great weekend. Good job. Major funding for Front Row is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Yuen through the Yuen Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities. And by. Funding for the Lightning Round provided by Body Knoll Foundation, NC Realtors, Mary Louise and John Burris, Reifenberg Construction, and Helen Lockery. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row.